Back in episode 141, Dr. Helen Kelly and I talked about burnout and the things school leaders can do to help recover from work and avoid burnout. Helen noted in that show that recovery was only 20% of the antidote because the problem of burnout is not an individual problem, it's an organizational problem. So if 80% of burnout is due to factors within the organization, your district or your school, what can you, my school leader colleague, do to change your organization? It's messy, but thankfully the incomparable Helen Kelly is back with us today to help us get dirty. Hello, colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Frederick Buskey. We are all on a leadership journey. Every day, we have a chance to grow. Every day, we have a chance to help others grow. My goal and the goal of this podcast is to help you grow into being a strategic leader, a leader who puts people before purpose, who solves problems instead of treating symptoms, and who understands the difference between progress and action. Through this podcast, my daily email and virtual programs, I'm working to build a network of inspired and inspiring school leaders. Let's get started on today's adventure and this unique opportunity to learn to live and lead better. Helen Kelly is committed to helping schools maximize well-being and improve school culture. She led international schools in Asia and Europe and until she retired from her work as a principal in 2020. She's been conducting research in the field of educator well-being for almost a decade. Helen brings a unique and valuable perspective to her work. She draws upon her knowledge of evidence-based practices, her understanding of the needs of school communities, and her legal background to deliver approaches that are strategic, effective, and have long-term impact on individual well-being and school culture. Helen's first book, School Leaders Matter, Preventing Burnout, Managing Stress, and Improving Well-Being, is published by Rutledge and available on Amazon. Hello, Helen. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Frederick. Thanks for asking me to come back. I've been really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I'm thrilled. And I've kind of been reflecting on some things I learned from last time and really excited to, to go where we're going to go today. Before I do that, I have to ask you, what are you celebrating today? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, I'm celebrating something really big, or I hope I am. So in the last two and a half years, we've been trying to buy a house on the west coast of Ireland, and we've had three purchases fall through, and we've just been and placed an offer on a house today, and we're waiting to hear whether or not it's been accepted. And what's wonderful about it is that it's by far the best house of the four, and it almost seems like this journey was coming to this point, and it was worth waiting and going through all the pain you know, and stress that we've been through over the last two and a half years to bring us to this point. So fingers crossed. Oh, that's so wonderful. So if the phone rings, we'll pause the podcast. <laughs> oh, I have told them, you know, I'm in online meetings on and off all week. So it's much better and actually do have my phone switched off. So yeah, <laughs> better to email me. <laughs> so Helen, if people haven't listened to episode 141 or they've forgotten, can you Tell us a story of that explains why you're doing the work that you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think firstly, my interest in workplace well-being goes back to before I was an educator. I was a lawyer in the field of workplace health and safety for 10 years. And then I became a teacher so I could travel and work. And then I was a school principal in international schools for 15 years. And during that time, I studied for my doctorate. And my thesis was around school leader well-being. And then I set up my blog and, you know, people started being interested in my work. And I was writing a lot of articles and uh, presenting at some conferences and things. And then it was really when the pandemic hit that it all took off. So mm. I actually experienced an occupational burnout myself a year before the pandemic. I just made a decision to retire from my work as a school leader. And when I did that, people started contacting me to ask me to support them because there was so much need for, you know, people that understood about employee well-being in schools. And so now, where are we? Three and a half years since I actually retired. Um, this could be a full-time job if I wanted it to be. I'm trying to kind of keep it manageable. 
you know, manage my own well-being. But it's Good something luck with I feel, that. <laughs> yeah, it's something I feel incredibly passionate about. It's like a calling. And I see now that it goes back right back to the very early 90s when, you know, I was working in the legal profession. Um, it isn't something that just came about during my time as an educator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I love one of the beauties in that, that I see from my own journey and, and in talking with so many people that are moving into their later decades now, but still building on their professional lives. It really is interesting how often we come back to where we started. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? I think it's where we were meant to be. It's like, there's some kind of, some things resonate with us. And when we're young, we follow that voice often don't we and then we get kind of dragged into everyday life we get dragged into the pursuit of ambition and career and sometimes even though we don't intend it to it takes us away from what really matters and then we have an opportunity or we have a wake-up call like I did with my own health that actually then enables us to come back to what we really cared about all those decades ago. We haven't changed as as a person inside. We're the same. The things that matter to us are still the same. And we're able to just return to those things that really matter. Yeah. So I, I, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, you've just triggered a flashback in me before the show, before we started recording, we were talking about our different joys that we've experienced on the me on the my Penine way hike and you were talking about this series of beaches that you've been walking on when pam and i did our Penine way hike we spent the night in sheffield before we went to edale and we found this little corner pub it was a triangular building on like on a really strangely shaped block and we went and we're just talking and making friends with the bartender and the owner and just laughing and being really open and vulnerable. And we had this flashback to when we first got married and moved overseas, taught at Robert College in Istanbul, and just how open we were and how vulnerable Mm -hmm. we were with people, just trusting and positive. And we had this flashback and we went back to the hotel that night and thought like, wow, we really still are those people. But it took that that moment that I think being somewhere else and and letting go of everything else because there is all this life stuff that piles up on us. And I think this is a really valuable conversation because I want people listening to just pause and and think about, are you who you were? Absolutely. At so many levels. Or are you, this sounds a bit, but you know, are you living true to yourself? And you know, what we talked about burnout last time and, you know, it's a useful segue really that, that, you know, burnout, it consists of three things. It's about being exhausted, but it isn't just that. It's about having that detachment or cynicism from what you're doing in the workplace because you don't believe in it anymore. And that's about your values to to a large extent. You don't feel that you're living true to your values anymore. And then as a result of that, the third stage, you know, the third kind of factor involved in burnout is that you don't feel that sense of personal accomplishment anymore. And, you know, it's those two, the the latter two things that enable us to distinguish a real burnout from someone who's just exhausted. And I don't want to minimise exhaustion. It's a, a terrible thing, but that's what a burnout is. And so I think that often we have this sense inside, I know I did for years, knowing that actually the person that I was, this principal persona that I had in schools wasn't actually the real me. And I was, but I was doing this for a a reason and I thought I was doing good through it. But then because I had a life-changing experience and got ill, I was able to have the opportunity to stand back and think, I'm not I don't think this is what I really want anymore and there are other things that I could do with my life that might be more useful and I can step away from this and I can rethink things and I don't have to keep treading this path I don't have children so I don't have to put my kids through college you know I'm reasonably comfortable financially and so I've got options and also I like to live a simple life my husband and I don't need a lot so it's an opportunity to just come back to who you really are. I think we all have that inside us. Yeah. I Okay. So I want to take that back to 
last time we talked, which was episode 141, and you talked about some specific strategies for work recovery. And so yeah. I did a few things and I'm I'm pulling those in now because I think it is a way of in small ways, like cleaning up our lives a little bit and trying to bring us back. We don't have to do the big life change, although that can be really rewarding and powerful, but there are little things that we can do as well, I think, to keep us cleaner and, and to retouch with ourselves and stay yeah, more no in touch with our purpose. That. Yeah. Absolutely. So after last time, one of the things I focused a lot on was my focus on transition from work to home, because that was yeah. something I was terrible at. In fact, after we talked and I started advocating with my audience more and finding ways to say, Hey, you really need to unplug on your way home from work and make that transition. I realized we always release this podcast at 3 PM. <laughs> yeah. So we now release at 6 AM because of you, Brilliant. <laughs> you know, the time to get ready for work is when you're going to work, not when you're coming home. So yeah. I, I now don't listen to work podcasts once I'm done with my day. Even though I work most days in my home office, I when I'm done, I shut things down. I have a purposeful end to the day that I review for next day and get ready. And then I know it's good. Shut down. I change my clothes. No matter what I'm wearing during the day, I yeah. want to make a change. Yeah. So I've just done some things in there to signal myself that work is over. And that's been super helpful. During the days, I've worked really hard to bring in breaks. I use a timer that, and so, you know, every certain amount of time I take a break and I go do something that's different. And I know school leaders, that can be really hard, but it still can be manageable, right? You can set your alarm and then five minutes in the... Yeah, you have yeah. to want to. It's a discipline. You know, I think I probably told you last time, you know, I remember my worst day. It, you know, there were 12 meetings and they started at 6.45 a.m. and went through till 6 p.m. And I didn't have time to go to the bathroom or drink water, let alone eat lunch. But we have control over this, you know, and it's absolutely essential that we take those breaks and remember, micro breaks can be as short as 40 seconds. If we have several of them during the day, they can be beneficial. And if we don't take them, then we're just driving ourselves into the ground. Mm. And we have to be prepared to be disciplined with ourselves about taking breaks. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's let's pivot to, to today because yeah. we talk recovery is kind of the lesser part of burnout, which is maybe a surprising statement. But the thing that you'd said last time that has just kept rocking around in my head, the work environment is what's yes. burnout, right? Individuals don't burn out. It's work that is the burnout. Yeah. And so let's talk about what school leaders can do to change, to, to do things in their school so that their people don't burn out and maybe ways that they can advocate up the line with, with the districts so that principals and assistant principals aren't burning out. Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's important to understand the foundation of what you've just said. You know, it isn't just that I think that burnout is organizational. There are people who've been you know, researching this in a dedicated fashion for 40 years. And the foremost researchers are Maslach and Leiter. If anyone's interested in looking into the research, you know, it's it's powerful stuff. And it kind of blew my mind when I first found it. And there are a few books, but lots of research papers. And, you know, no one really, it's my framework to put your work demands and your work recovery in the way that I have. And I suspect it's probably 80-20. You know, that's, that's my thinking. It's not rigorously researched. But what we do know is that burnout is primarily a condition of the workplace, not a condition of the individual. And so I think it's important for people to understand that and to understand that although we do have, there are certain personality traits, personality types that are more vulnerable to burnout than others. I think that that's a very dangerous path to go down because it, we have to come back to the, it's not your fault. It is situational and contextual. It is about the nature of the workplace. And therefore, whilst there is a lot that we can do for work recovery on an individual level, as we discussed last time, we're just chipping around the edges. 
And actually, the biggest impact is at the organizational level. And if change isn't happening at the organizational level, there's a limit to how much we as individuals can prevent burnout. So when we look at that, you know, with the four work recovery experiences we talked about last time, but then on the other side, the work demands that they come in six, the six of them. But I like to think of them as being in two groups. And I think that this is a really helpful kind of model that I've developed, I guess. The first one is workload. And that's the one that everyone wants to talk about. But it isn't just about workload. There are five other factors which I would group under the phrase workplace culture. And those are community. So are we you know, do we feel that sense of belonging and that sense of support from the people around us? Do we have positive collegial relationships? All of those things. Do we have control over how we spend our time at work? Do we have autonomy? That's really important. Do we feel rewarded for what we're doing? So that is about extrinsic and intrinsic rewards. So it can be money. It can be status, promotion. But it can be intrinsic. It can be that sense of purpose, status, validation, a whole bunch of things. And it will be different for every person. And then the other two are fairness. So do we feel that we're being treated fairly in the workplace? And that can be a whole bunch of things. Is there favoritism? Is there perceived favoritism? Um, promotion? You know, are we being treated fairly? Res distribution of workload and resources across the school? And then values, and that value is one we, you know, we already talked about. It taps into our sense of purpose. Are our values the same as the values of the school, the same as the values of our colleagues, the same as the values of the community that we serve? And all of those things are workplace culture. So really, if you think of it as a three-part model, we've got workload, workplace culture, and then work recovery. Mm. But they're not all equal. Doesn't you know they're not all equal, and we tend to get hung up on workload a lot. But it isn't just about workload. The workplace culture is important, but when we talk about workload, again we tend to get hung up on the amount of work that there is to do. But it isn't just about quantitative. It's about the emotional demands of our work, particularly as school leaders. The emotional. This is where my research started. You know, ten. 11 years ago was looking at the emotional demands that we are under every day as school leaders. And the first main chapter of my book is about this. That's how important it is to me, you mm. know? So in order to provide an environment where people are thriving in the workplace, and that's what we want because healthy employees are more effective employees, you know, and I could, that's a whole podcast of just talking about that. We have to be providing the right level of workload for the individual and then the right workplace culture for the individual. So what individuals need differs. That sounds complicated. It's not as complicated as it sounds, but it isn't just about the individual going home and looking after themselves in their free time. It's about what we're doing in school to create the workplace that is going to support people in thriving and flourishing and we're very good at doing that for our students and we don't realize that actually all the stuff that the students need the adults in the building need just the same yeah yeah well and in listening to teachers it seems one of the things about workload is not how much they're being asked to do but what they're being asked to do and i think you you kind of hit on that a little bit but sitting in going to professional development that they don't see the value in or being yeah. told what PD they have to do when they actually want to work. They want to work yeah. and put time into getting better at questioning strategies or whatever, but no, they're being told they have to go do something else that they don't see as relevant, which, which hits at workload because now it's, you know, it's the emotion and it's not actually helping them grow as well as it just kills autonomy. Yeah, bingo. I was hoping you'd come to that. So really, <laughs> people talk about workload. They're not really talking about workload. They're talking about control. 
you know, and this is what happens in the school that, that I work with. You know, when I begin working with them, they all think they know the answer and they all get hung up about workload. But actually, when we do surveys and focus groups and we dig deeper into what's going on, it's not about workload on the whole. It's about the workplace culture. And if you treat people well and people feel they belong, and I'll just run through with you what the, the main aspects of the workplace culture are that, you know, we're trying to promote. So first of all, we want to have that sense of belonging. We know that students need that, and we spend a long time trying to create that for students, but adults need this too. Then we need to have positive collegial relationships, you know, absolutely crucial. And we need to have a sense of recognition and appreciation. And then finally, we need to have psychological safety. So that means where we can come to work, we can admit mistakes, ask questions without fear of judgment or reprisals. And if we have those four things in place, we're going to have a positive workplace culture where everyone is actually able to operate at their maximum. And it's so easy to think it really isn't. It's just a transactional thing. We give you money, you come in and work hard, and then you go home and rest. It, it is not, that is, is not how it works. Yeah. It's a contract in a, in a much more emotional way when we, we, know we go into a workplace and we have needs. And if we ignore those needs, what we end up with is a workforce that isn't motivated and ultimately could burn out. Yeah. I, I think we need to talk more about the ethical obligations of leadership in, in that when you hold power over somebody, you yeah. then have an ethical obligation to care. You do. But I, but I also think I always talk about supporting and growing teachers. And those mean two specific things, right? Supporting to me is bringing alignment to the organization so that those rewards, those resources, the structures, the way we ask people to do their work is, is that's all congruent. So people aren't feeling that stress of trying to work against a system or swimming, swimming upstream. Yeah. And then the growth people is about the growth part is about them. What are my skills? What's my knowledge, but also my dispositions and my health. And, yeah. and so if we grow people, then we're supporting that. And part of that is taking care of people. There'll be a podcast coming out. I think in a couple of weeks, I interviewed a teacher and she talked about losing her father and how just difficult that was, but her principal was there for her with her and yeah. he was just present and was able to understand her emotions and help her process things through. He was present as a human being. He wasn't telling her how to be a better teacher, right? He was there because establishing care. And the thing she said was at that time, not only did she value that, but she said, I was a better teacher than I could have been just because I would, he cared and he was present. And, and exactly. so I knew I was supported. Exactly. So even I, I'm not disagreeing with you about the ethical thing, but for some people, that's a stretch. Mm. Let's move away from that idea. Actually, it's about the bottom line. The bottom line in schools is what's best for students. The school being effective in order to get the best student outcomes. And what we know from the research is if we attend to the needs of the adults in the building by providing a positive workplace culture, students ultimately have better outcomes. So if we can even divorce it from that moral and ethical thing, it's about the bottom line. And there's so much research. You know, we're very poor at this in schools, but in the corporate world, Frederick, they've known this for decades. I mean, remember 25, 30 years ago when Google kind of transformed the workplace and, you know, we all thought, us older people all thought that was weird, you know. But we know now in the corporate world, they've known this for decades, that actually if you invest in your people and you provide them with a supportive uh, workplace that attends to their individual needs and provides for their growth, actually the organisation is more effective. And that that is the same in schools. It's not any different. And in fact, in some ways, I would argue it's potentially more important in schools because certain kinds of people become educators 
They're very caring. They're very sensitive individuals. We also know from research that the that the personal and professional identities of teachers are much more closely intertwined than people that work in other many other professions. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff there around why this matters. It's not just a nice to have. And it's not just something that some principals will do because they're caring and others aren't caring. It's that this is a way to run, to run the most effective school. And that's what we want ultimately. You know, this is a way to be a better leader and to get better results for your students is to attend to the needs of the adults. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying and agree 100% that we can have that outcomes focus. And that outcomes focus is is going to lead us to building the positive culture and attending to people. For me, I'm going to cling desperately to, to the ethical side of that leadership. And I, I have struggled to really understand how you can lead a school in this time without being a servant leader. And I guess listening to what you were just saying, the servant doesn't have to be because I'm this ethical person, right? The servant can be because I know this is a way for us to, to get to the end. And I've been kind of preaching people before purpose because going back to your fifth bullet under culture, right? The values and purpose. Yep. And I think the pressures, external pressures on school, on schools to perform in tests. And in the United States, we have all these cultural issues. The perp, the actual purpose of why our school is there is, is under attack and it's being distorted. And I think at the institutional level, there's a lot of confusion now about what the real purpose of school is. But going back to what you said about teachers having that identity, teachers know what the purpose of school is. Right. Yeah. So outside of the political stuff and the language that we're, that we're using, they know why they're there. And so if we focus on people and helping them do the work that they're passionate about, it's a way to kind of circumvent all the, the bad stuff that's happening around purpose and how it's being distorted and to get to kind of the truth of what the real purpose is. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I go the outcomes approach is that I work with a lot of schools around the world. Some of them are huge organizations and they really need persuading as to why this is important. And so you have to show them how it affects the bottom line in order for them to buy in. As far as the servant leader thing is concerned, so we, we touched on it briefly last time. There's a chapter in my book about self-sabotage behaviours. And actually, they're all desirable leadership behaviours, but if they go too far, they can be damaging. And the first one that I discuss, or one of the first ones, is servant leader. You know, that absolutely people like you and myself do this because we are or were servant leaders. Um, but you can take that too far and you can abnegate your own needs to the needs of your community and end up like I did, you know, falling yeah. off a cliff. So, uh, and, you know, we also need to make sure that we are a servant leader for the right reasons and that we don't um, commodify servant leadership in the way that we have other things like emotional intelligence and you know where now we're all expected to do that and it's a box to tick and everybody if you're not a servant leader you're failing and misunderstanding what servant leadership is mm. i think i agree with you but i think we just have to be a little bit careful okay so i think there are probably a lot of servant leaders listening to this podcast yeah. you said there's a line. I don't know if that's literally a firm line. How how do I know if I have that servant leader mindset? What are the dangers that I need to be aware of that maybe I'm starting to undermine myself and probably setting a bad example for the other servant leaders in my building? Yeah. Well, I mean, it comes back to the last podcast, doesn't it? It's about your work recovery. Mostly that one is, isn't it? Um, and also what we were talking about just before we started recording which is we know, we have an inner voice. We know what's good for us and what's not good for us. And when we put, I, I don't think I've ever worked with a school leader who had an aha moment because they realized they were pushing themselves too hard. They all knew that they were pushing themselves too hard, but they just, they didn't have the tools or they didn't have the, they didn't even have the um, opportunity to reflect 
sufficiently to be able to step away and step back and take a long, hard look at where they were and how they got here and what's good for me and what isn't good for me and to be able to attend to their own needs. And there's only so far that you can keep abnegating your own needs to the needs of your community and keep pushing and pushing yourself. And I think one of the things that probably stands out, the word that's used the most in the coaching that I do is guilt. Mm. You know, mm. many leaders feel if they take time for themselves, that makes them feel guilty because somehow they're expected to just, you know, prostrate themselves on the altar of their community. And that's completely wrong. You know, what we've got to understand is that we have to, you know, all that you cannot pour from an empty cup and all that stuff. It's true. You know, <laughs> look after yourself because, you know, I don't talk that much. I haven't spoken with you that much about what happened to me, but believe me, when it goes wrong, it's not nice. So I think of burnout as being a slow burn over many, many years. And then at the last minute you fall off a cliff. Mm. It mm. happens that fast and yeah. it's hard and it's very hard to come back from. And what happens is these servant leaders feeling the guilt putting their community first. They can feel themselves getting more and more and more exhausted and have less and less and less to give over a period of time. But they keep thinking that they can go on like this. And then there suddenly comes a day when suddenly you can't and you don't see it coming. Mm. You know? And I think it's also, there's this element of martyr martyr syndrome. I don't know if that's, oh, that's a thing, right? But yeah, I gotta, I'm, and and it's so tied to identity. I'm going to take care. I'm going to put everybody first. But as you keep saying, and we keep going back to, if you're not recovering, if you're not taking care of yourself, then you're being selfish. And and that that selflessness is you know you're you're undermining your own ability to take care of people. And what are you modeling when I'm on email at Absolutely. eleven o'clock at night and Absolutely. I'm available all the time? And giving an impression that there's an expectation that others should follow suit. I think it goes deeper than that, though. You know, if I think about the self-sabotage behaviours, people need to take take time to reflect on why they're doing this. And I, I identify 10 self-sabotage behaviours. It's things like perfectionism. Why have I become a perfectionist? Was there something that happened in my childhood that made me like this? Imposter syndrome is another one that's very common, more so with female leaders and leaders from uh, minority groups, you know, where you work hard because you feel that you're suddenly going to be found out that actually you don't deserve to be here or you're co constantly um, try, you know, getting new qualifications and studying for new courses in order to prove yourself. Um, you're a people pleaser. Why might you be a people pleaser? Um, or you're a hero leader. That's another type of leadership where you think that it's your job to solve everyone's problems. So there are all these kind of, this is kind of more like therapy. You know, it's an opportunity to reflect upon, well, why am I giving everything and working myself into the ground for this community? Um, and why am I not prepared to prioritize what I need? It's, it, 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 you know, yeah, there's a whole chapter on that in my book. Um, and I've used that framework with quite a lot of my coaching clients, but also in workshops. And I've never come across anyone who couldn't recognize at least three of them in themselves. Mm. Some people can recognize seven out of 10. <laughs> well, after you get moved into your new house, you just talked yourself into another podcast because we did do a show <laughs> yeah. on specifically on the 10 self-sabotaging behaviors. I think that would be yeah. outstanding. Hey, yeah. let's go back to those five yeah, elements yeah. of culture, right? The community, yeah. control, autonomy, um, how we do rewards, fairness, and values. Yeah. I think I love that we've hit this 40,000 foot viewpoint. And I think that's been really important for contextualizing this next part of the conversation, which let's dig in and let's talk about some of the things specific strategies that leaders can do. So you've convinced me, yes, I see this importance of culture. I want to build my school and make some changes in my school. So my teachers aren't feeling this, right? Okay. I'm ready to go, Helen. What can I do? And what can, what's actually doable where I'm not just adding to my own stress again? Okay. So I always get to this point in podcasts and, you know, where someone wants me to tell them what to do. And what I have to say is, well, there's a stage that comes before that. 
because the truth is there's no one size fits all approach in well-being and so actually what we have to do is find out what does our school need what does our staff need because what we're in danger of is that in the same way that we sometimes do well-being to the staff by deciding, oh, they would love to have cake in the staff room, you know, in the lunch room on a Friday, or they would love to have an outing for this without us asking them, you know, what they want. The same thing with culture is the culture is different in every school. And we need to find out first and foremost what the issues are. You know, so there are workplace culture surveys that we can do. We can do focus groups. We can just ask people and we figure out what it is are the main areas that need to be addressed so that we're not just applying a model from one school to another that isn't going to work. You know, so that has to come first. And I think it's absolutely essential. I have a strategic framework. It's in my book. Um, I call it the workplace wellbeing framework. I think in the book I called it something different, but you know, these things kind of evolve. Um, and it's a six point strategic approach to making sure that we can do this in a meaningful way for our community and it's sustainable rather than just becoming a tick box of a list of things that Helen Kelly said you should do. And we tick that and we don't make any meaningful change. So if the first thing is that we're going to form a team, it's a collaborative team from across the school of people in all the different kinds of jobs types not just educators but people who work in the office who look after the buildings everybody is represented in a team it's collaborative and then we gather data and we can gather data through surveys or focus groups or check-ins or all kinds of ways and then once we've gathered data then we have to analyze it and actually do something with it you know there's a very there's a huge trend around the world at the moment to do these well-being surveys with staff and the staff take all their time to do them. And then we don't do anything with the data. And then when we come to do the survey next time, nobody fills it in because they didn't see any change from last time. And it's just a waste of time. You know, so then we have to analyze the data, figure out what it's telling us. And that's the point at which we can then start to set priorities and goals, you know. But just to give you some kind of more concrete examples of some of the work that I do with schools, um, if we take belonging as the first one, belonging is all around mission, vision and values. So it's all around articulating what is the mission and vision of our school and what are the values of our school and making and allowing that to be a collaborative process. So everyone, it really is, they really are our values as a community. And this really is our mission and vision. And we embed that in our daily practice, you know, that. that that's one of the first ways. Also, there's been a lot of stuff, hasn't there, recently in the last three or four years about diversity, you know, equity, inclusivity and justice. So people need to feel that they're accepted into the workplace, that they can bring their whole selves to work. You know, that thing that no matter what their lifestyle is or the choices they make, they're accepted. And then we're finding opportunities to bring the community together to to build community. So whatever that may be, and it will be different for every community. Um, then the next stage is about developing those positive collegial relationships. And there's one word there, and that's respect. If you ask educators, what is it that you want from your collegial relationships? It's respect. People want to feel respected. You know, so there's some amazing work from a researcher called Christine Porath about incivility in the workplace. And what she has found is how much more effective workplaces are where people engage in civil interactions. And when there are uncivil interactions, that not only impacts massively on the person who's the victim of it, but it impacts massively on people who witness that. So we're doing the kind of work that we do with children in the classroom about how to play nicely together. But we're not very good at that as adults. And so we're building a, a culture where we understand why it's important to be respectful and what does respect look like. Mm. And for example, some of the schools I've been working with for the last two or three years have developed collaboratively as a staff a workplace culture statement where they have a set of expectations about how people behave towards each other in the school and they embed those into their you know daily practice and they're really really successful 
Then the other way is looking at what do what can we do for recognition and, and appreciation? How do we show people that they're recognized? What kind of programs for recognition do we have? How do we demonstrate appreciation for staff? Um, how do we celebrate together? They sound like such simple things, but we're so bad at them. And then finally, psychological safety is really about trust building. And if I was to say one thing that works better than anything else, it's working with middle leadership. The relationships that middle leadership create, the team leaders, you know, whether they be grade leaders, subject leaders, whatever, um, you know, heads of department, heads of faculty, whatever you call them, different schools call them different things. If we can train those people to understand about the people work, to understand about the difference between transactional management and transformational leadership, how we maximize human potential, because that's what leadership is. It's about maximizing human potential. How We know how to do that with our students. How do we do that with adults? How do we build that relation, those relationships with them? How do we build trust? How do we demonstrate respect? How do we show people they're appreciated? If we can do that at the middle leader level, it has a much greater impact because they're the people who are rubbing shoulders on a day-to-day -day basis with the staff who are working on the front line. You know, Does that make sense or am I just rambling? <laughs> no, I think you're dead on. And one of the things I try to say is if you're a school leader, if you're a principal, if you're in administration, you have two jobs. Number one, keep everybody safe. Right? Got to do yeah. that. Number two is grow your teachers because better teachers is, is a better school. And I was just reading an article about New York driving in all these big literacy programs. And like, that's awesome. Literacy is really complicated. And so we want people to learn how to teach reading better. But is that what everybody needs, right? Is that is that where we all need to go? And you go back to that autonomy. And when we're at that leadership level, when we're driving the bus and we're saying what everything needs, we just we just went against how many of these things that you just talked about, right? Because yep. if I yep. have all the answers, then yep. I'm breaking down community. You don't have autonomy because I have all the answers. I'm going to reward you based on what's important to me. Yep. It's not You've fairness. Got it. Yeah. I, I... Got it. It's about collaboration, really. And, you know, I'm really fortunate because I worked in the International Baccalaureate, you know, the IB, IB schools um, for many, many years. But I also worked in the UK system as well in British international schools and in the UK and coming back to working with a lot of UK schools now and being able to compare them to the IB schools I work in the one difference is that level of collaboration UK schools are very top down still they're very hierarchical it's all about leadership making the decisions and we you know we decide the future direction of the school we decide what the staff learn we decide who's doing what and really the way that you transform a school and transform the workforce is by genuine collaboration, not just paying lip service to it, but actually genuinely bringing people in and demonstrating to them that you trust them, that they have a lot to offer, that you don't have all the answers, that collaboratively together, we have a much better chance of being able to make good decisions and solve problems than just one person on their own. And that's one of the ways in which we transform a culture is by making it more democratic, more collaborative, more participatory, whatever you want to call it, um, rather than just having this hierarchy where one person or a small group of people has all the answers and figures everything out badly often. It's true, I, isn't it? If you make oh, a decision absolutely. on the road, you've got a much better chance of making a bad decision. You know, one of the questions I... I get a lot, especially from assistant principals. And here in the States, it seems like our assistant principal pool is getting younger and younger. So we're, yeah. we're getting people in their late twenties, early thirties coming in as okay. assistant principals. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're then, they're then working with veteran teachers who may be as old as <laughs> had been teaching as long as those people are old. 
And, yeah. and so how do you work with veteran teachers? And I came up with a really simplified framework because I went out and asked, I asked teachers and, and people, they, what, yeah, what do you want? And they said, number one, listen. And I remember there's a great veteran teacher, uh, Jennifer Bertram, who I worked with in South Carolina. And she said, just come and listen to me and learn about my experiences and make me feel heard because yep. that is in such short supply. And the amount of time I hear teachers say, nobody listens to me. And when administrators, yeah. And when administrators go and say, Helen, tell me about your, tell me what great things happened in your lessons today. It's like, that's earth shattering. It is. And it, it impacts on how you feel about yourself. It impacts on how you feel about the workplace. It makes you feel needed, trusted. It goes back to that sense of belonging, you know? So when somebody has heard you and seen you, you feel that you belong, but also you feel respected. So it goes back to the quality of the relationships you know it also makes you feel recognized and appreciated so those four kind of elements you know it's touching on almost all of them so it's so in many ways frederick it's so simple but we've just lost sight of how important people are in the workplace especially when we're doing people work and that the best way the way to get the best out of people is to attend to those needs and ultimately not only will it make the school more effective but it will it comes back to where we started it it makes us more well it attends to our well-being it is an aspect of well-being not just you know cultural well-being are inextricably linked you know well-being is not a thing on its own well-being is everything everything that we do you know has the potential to make us feel better or make us feel worse it it has the potential to energize us or to drag us down you know it has the potential to make us feel that it's all worthwhile or make us think it's all a waste of time it's 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 easy and complex at the same time so for the second time we've done a podcast, you didn't give me my little bullet pointed list. That I tell no, people, I'm sorry, Go ahead I didn't. And do this. But <laughs> okay. yeah. You okay, know. but I but I'm I'm gonna give the bullet points. So I'll take ownership for this, but then you can you can tell me you can caution the audience how much they should listen to me. So I, I think it is going back inside and and first checking in with yourself. And there's yep. two things that you need to do. One is to embrace the idea that you do not have all the answers and, and that leaders don't have, that's not what the role of leadership is not to have exactly. all the answers. It's better if you don't have all the answers, it's better. You know, I don't know if I said this to you last time, but there's a very well-known educationalist in the UK called Andy Hargreaves. He's written a lot of books and things. And he said that if you're in a meeting and there are six of you and you all have the same opinion, then five of you are surplus to requirements. Mm, mm, yeah. You know? What we want are people who think different things and bring different experiences to the table. So actually, it's not a failing of you as a leader. It's no. actually what we desire in leaders is people that don't know all the answers and want to tap into other people's experience. So I, yeah, I've consistently, I was never a building level administrator. And yet I yeah. focus on assistant principals and I think it works because I don't, I can't bring my own experiences. I have stolen relentlessly everybody I talk to. I am stealing and trying to listen to all of these different leadership perspectives and then put them together based on that. Brilliant. If I thought I had the answers, this, this, I couldn't, it would be awful. And, and so I invite all the leaders out there to take that perspective, understand you haven't taught in all those areas. You haven't encountered all of these different schools. You haven't lived the lives that all of your people have lived. So just embrace it. You don't have all the answers and that's yeah, not your humble. job. Be humble. Yeah. And well, that leads to number two. So number two is trust your people, trust yeah. them. And, and then third, go out and be present and listen, ask the questions and just listen, because in listening, you will start to learn. And then where I would make the mistake is 
on the fourth bullet point, I would be suggesting once you've listened to everybody now, start to put that together. But I, I learned today too. And the fourth bullet point is probably start to then think about and build that collaborative group so you can start to learn yeah. together. Exactly. Brilliant. Thank you. I want to say one thing about trust, because I've been doing a lot of work on this in schools and the research shows that trust has to be given first. Yes. So as a leader, you have to trust your staff. Trust isn't earned. You have to give trust first. We always think, don't we, in that old fashioned dynamic that, you know, as a school leader, staff have to earn trust. That's not what the research shows. It's a leap of faith. We have to give trust. And then, you know, we'll be rewarded, but it, it, you can't just expect people to earn trust. That's not mm -hmm. how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Teachers know what they need to be better teachers. They do. At multiple levels. And, and I think the research is pretty clear that most principals are really bad about deciding what a teacher needs to work on. If I put, if I have 10 APs, watch a video on teaching, I'm going to get at least five different answers of what that teacher should, should work on. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so what does that tell us? That tells us just trust the teacher because yeah. at the very worst, if they choose the wrong air quotes thing to focus on, but we help them get better at that. We have improved their quality of life and we have built that trust. Absolutely. It's a no you know, in, in some of the coaching that I do, the, you know, the, the school comes to me and they identify people that they want me to coach. And they even identify a whole bunch of targets that they want me to coach them around. And I'm always very upfront and say, well, actually, you know, what we discuss is actually confidential. And we may discuss the things that you've suggested, but we may discuss other things. And nine times out of 10, actually the thing that the coachee wants to discuss is not the thing that the school thinks they should be discussing. It's something else that's burning inside them that they need support with or that they, you know, they they, they want to get better at. Um, so you're absolutely right. You, you know, we, we are very bad at it, it makes me smile when I do. I'm sure that same for you too. I I have to do references for people all over the world who are applying for jobs who worked for me once a long time ago, and quite often the reference asks, "What what do you think is as you know areas of targets for them to improve?" And well, I haven't worked with them for five years. You really want the principal from five years ago to say what they should be getting better at? You know, that's just a a kind of ridiculous kind of um, version of what we've just said, isn't it? <laughs> well, because you're supposed to have all the answers because you're the leader. <laughs> I haven't seen this person for five years, but I know what she needs to get better at. <laughs> oh, oh, that, you know, when I was coaching, when I was doing athletics coaching, one of the challenges that I discovered painfully was that I always saw my players as they were. And it was really hard as a coach to recognize where they are versus yeah. where they were, because we're always analyzing, we form these opinions. And once we get those things embedded, we're in trouble. And the antidote to that is asking people what they need, where they need to go. Absolutely. And that brings us back, you know, this strategic framework. It's essential to figure out what it is that we need as a school first by asking people, yeah. you know, because because we, we, what people, even if people could jointly agree, you know, they might they might be wrong because they'll they think that where we are now actually is the same as where we were a year ago, and we haven't. We've moved on, or most likely in the schools that I work in, people have a massive divergence of opinion over what the priority should be when it comes to culture and work, you know, well being, and it really is figuring out what the work that I do um, looks at the themes that are emerging across the staff, you know, the whole staff. And then we dig a little bit deeper to put some flesh onto the bones. So we're looking at the, the lumps of flour that are coming to the surface. We're not dealing with every individual's issues and gripes. We're looking at the broad themes and looking at what we can fix broadly. And that's got a much better chance of being effective and being sustainable over time because we're not promising to fix every single member of staff's little kind of 
issues that are bothering them as an individual. It's looking at broad themes and it works. So if I want to improve the workplace environment so that it is not a workplace that is burning people out, I can take two different approaches. I can do a quarterly free lunch, jeans day and sticky notes and put some kind of candy <laughs> bar in your box, yeah. which is going to have a minimal effect, or I can actually dig into it and digging yeah. into it. Yes. It's going to be messy. It is not going to be bullet points, but no. there, there you have it. Thank you. It is messy. Thank you for saying that because I have to say this to schools. This is bold work. This is innovative work. This isn't for the faint hearted, but if you are genuine about wanting to make an impact, this is what the way that it needs to be done. And it's, you know, it's proven uh, the schools that I'm working with now, you know, I'm working with them for second year, third year, because they can see that this is working. And it doesn't mean that you have to work with me. Anyone can put this framework into practice. It's just an approach. It's taking a strategic and collaborative approach rather than a piecemeal tick box approach, which is your kind of you know, free cake in the lunchroom and a chocolate bar in the pocket. And there's nothing wrong with that. Teachers love food. No one loves food more than teachers, but it's not going to make lasting change, is it? No. You know? no. So, yeah, you have to be prepared for it to be messy. You have to be prepared. I'm just, I'm doing a conference um, in the UK in Windsor in April with a head teacher from a big school in Europe. And we're going to do the presentation on warts and all, my work with their school, warts and all, all the things that went wrong, all the things that were unexpected, all the tricky, messy things that we that we wished hadn't happened, that we didn't see come in and how we dealt with it because it is bold, innovative and messy work, but it's absolutely worth it, you mm. know? I love that. I love that. Uh, this has been great. I think we could go on for another hour, but probably mutes aren't that long. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's also dinner time now here. I need to put my my meal on. We're different end of the day to you, so I'm quite hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just got my midday tea. Helen, what part of your own leadership are you still trying to get better at? Oh, I think I probably said when you asked me that last time, it was to do with listening. Um, I guess it's too, it, it's changed now because I'm working with so many school communities and they all have different needs. And I guess it's about trying to take a step back. And, you know, I guess it's a bit kind of um, Atticus Finch, really. It's me standing in their shoes rather than me seeing it from my perspective. So for me to be successful in what I do now, it's necessary for me to stand in the shoes of multiple communities over a period of a, of a week or a month and be able to see things from their perspective, not just what I think it should be, but what it actually is. And so trying to be unbiased and reflective and listen and hear people and just not jump to any conclusions. And also someone in one of the schools I work at taught me this. It's about always presuming good intent. And it's so easy because in the absence of information, when we're on the move and we don't get all the information and we just get part of it, we make up explanations. I'm terrible about making up explanations of why somebody said something or why something happened or didn't happen. And oftentimes our explanations are a reflection of our own headspace. And, and so if we're stressed and in any kind of a negative space, we're creating these negative stories. So we are, you know, when I got ill, um, when I got, had my burnout and I got ill and I'd been in hospital and I came out and some people thought I was very weird because I was sending regular updates to the staff with quite a lot of detail about what was happening to me. And the reason I did that was because I knew if I wasn't open that people would just make stuff up. Mm. You know? Schools are such rumor mills. And so, <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to be very open with everyone. This is what's happening so that they didn't just make up explanations. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. But, I, but I think from the perspective of, yeah, I'm trying to get better all the time at just taking a step back and looking at this community for what it is going in without expectations, going out without going in without a clear idea of where, of what the journey will look like. 
and just listening to what people tell me and taking their lead, you know? I think that's what listeners should take away from today. Like that yeah. is what you just said is exactly for this messy work, what people need to take away, just go and listen. And we don't have the answers and every community is different and every classroom is different and every teacher is different and you don't know what's happening behind the scenes. No. And that's why you can't have a one size fits all approach, you know, because it is it, the experience is different for everyone. And so we just have to listen. And the other thing is that just, you know, I think this is quite important too. I, you know, I get a lot of naysayers in my work and they're trying to knock it down. Just because it isn't perfect doesn't mean it isn't worthwhile. And just because we can't change everything doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to change some things. And it takes time and it will be a drip, 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 drip. And over a period of time, we will start to see dramatic change but it has to start somewhere. We have to be positive. And if we don't do the work, it's never going to change. We, but we can't we can't wave a magic wand. We can't change everything. So let's just get, it's about rolling up your sleeves and getting down and dirty, you know, and being prepared to do it and not worrying if it's, if it's not perfect. The innovation, you know, I did a lot, I've done a lot of research and work in innovation in the past. Innovation is, it's not a straight line. You know, children don't grow in a straight line, do they? They grow like this. Yeah. Change is the same, you know. One of the things that you just said that I appreciate and want to point out is you talked about making small progress. So yeah. we've been talking about a big thing. And, and if you're going to listen to everybody and you're going to bring a group of people together and you're going to start on this journey, that sounds like a big change. But I would challenge people to... The, do the front end piece, but then to realize that you are not making a big changes. You are making lots of little changes. And in fact, it is the really subtle, small things that add up to the change in culture. Yay. You, you just so get it. You're absolutely right. Having that strategic and collaborative approach, that's the big change up front because it takes a paradigm shift, doesn't it? It's not how we've done things before. But actually, once we find out what needs to change and we start to make those little, you know, we have those initiatives, what we call interventions, you are absolutely right. It's about lots of small things stuck together over a period of time that grow a more positive workplace culture and impact on people's well-being. It's not about dramatic things that we can do it's about small things in exactly the same way as that happens for you know for the relationships with children in the classroom and the small things somebody said to me and I remember this from when I got ill one day you'll look back and remember that what you thought were the small things were actually the big things yeah yeah the audience can't see I'm just saying you're nodding yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it is about that. The things that you think are the small things, the things that we take for granted every day and figure we can't change them or they're not they're not important enough to change. They're the things, all of those micro interactions, the thousands of micro interactions that staff have with each other and have with leadership over a period of a day or a week or a month or a school year, those thousands of micro interactions, that's what we're talking about. And it's changing, chipping away at the quality of those micro interactions to improve them. And that's what makes the difference in the end. It's not one big thing. It's thousands and thousands of micro interactions, you know. We're going to tie this off there. And I think we have the title of this show. It's about the small things. It is. is that okay? It absolutely is. Absolutely. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Helen, you're doing so much great work. I know you have your book out and you're doing workshops and just tell us, we'll put all this in the show notes, but yeah. people are excited. They, they want to find out more about what you're doing. Where do they go? Yeah. The best place is just to go to my website, drhelenkelly.com. And one there's L. lots of, one, yeah, L. one L. One L in Helen, two in Kelly, three L's altogether. Um, and um, there's lots of stuff there. There are more podcasts for you to listen to. Um, there are a lot of articles that I've written for magazines and also for my own blog from a few years ago, and I used to still do that. Um, there's also information on how to contact me, but you can also send me an email, helen at drhelenkelly.com anytime. I'm always happy to hear from people. 
And uh, and there's my book. Yes, yeah, and you have leaders a book. Matter. School leaders matter. I have it in my hand, yeah. and I think this is Learn one of those managing books. stress and improving well being. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is one of those books that people can read through. And you want to have your markers and your sticky notes, and however you want to do it, because it's something that there are just these nuggets in here, these rich pieces that you're going to want to come back to. So yeah, the first part is all about how we got here, how bad it is and how we got there. But the second part is all about solutions, whether they be solutions at the government level or whether they be solutions at the school level or whether they be solutions at the individual level. And um, yeah, it's um, it seems to be successful and people are telling me that it resonates with them. And there's also some stuff woven in there about my own experience of burnout as well, which people find helpful, you know? So, um, so yeah, and if you do buy my book, please leave me a review on Amazon. No, I better I go. I very much appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, Helen, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure, Frederick, and I hope we get have the chance to get together again soon. Okay, you take care. This was a long but rich episode and have very little to add. If this episode resonated with you, going to school today and begin asking your teachers, staff, and maybe even kids these three questions. After X number of weeks in the fall, what has gone well? Have there been any surprises? Is there anything we could be doing differently? Just remember, you don't have the answers. You can trust your people and be present. Hey, leadership is a journey, and thank you for choosing to walk some of this magical path with me. You can find links to all sorts of stuff in the show notes, including my website, frederickbuskey.com. I love hearing from you, so consider emailing me at frederick at frederickbuskey.com or connecting with me on LinkedIn. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Have a great rest of the week. Be present for others, and more importantly, Take time to reflect and recover so you can continue to live and lead better. Cheers.